0: Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Kathy, And I'm Joe. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> it's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. <coughs>
1: Today we're on a local grouse moor and I guess, Cathy, it's a environment we've been skirting around. We've mentioned it in a few podcasts and not gone down that road. Today we've decided we're going to bite the bullet, excuse uh-huh. the pun, <laughs> and come up to a local grouse moor. And have a chat. Because
0: it's early August.
1: Yeah. And um, we're we're coming close
0: up to the date which is known as the glorious 12th. The 12th of August when the grass
1: shooting season officially starts. Yeah. And it carries on until December. And it's fair to say
0: it's a pretty controversial topic. A lot of the land in this area is owned and run as a shooting estate.
1: Yeah. So do you want to kind of give us a quick... Um, description of the landscape that we're standing in
0: well we are at the moment at about 380 metres above sea level we're looking out over flattish hills as far as the eye can see um, there's a sort of purplish tinge to most of them because the heather is in full flower um, and these are the, the moors are the areas of the hilltops above the enclosed farmland which is currently looking bright green and the heather moor is sort of patchy this mixture of heather moor and grass moor and it's kind of got this weird patchy appearance which you can see if you look on um like google, google maps, maps yeah with a satellite setting you can see the the landscape it looks like someone's had a bad shave and it's like <laughs> strips strips and squares and patches in a kind of higgledy-piggledy pattern and that's where the Um, People who manage the estate have burnt heather in in succession. A lot of people really love the
1: moors. People feel very passionate about it. It's got this kind of stark, bleak beauty to it. Yeah. In some people's eyes. Open, empty
0: skies, expansive. And it goes purple with the heather every Um, year, every summer.
1: Um, But actually, it's as we're going to come on to discuss, hmm. um, quite ecologically... There's a jogger running by, fell runner maybe. I'd say fell runner. Yeah, not um, very wiry looking man. Yeah, it's quite ecologically impoverished because of the way it's managed. I mean, it's the height of summer, so the birds aren't singing anyway as much. Because well, we finished the, the breeding season's over. Yeah, but you might be able to hear around us not much. <laughs> there's,
0: there's the odd meadow pipit. Yeah.
1: There is the odd meadow pipit, and mm, occasionally you might hear the weird call of a red grouse because there are certainly plenty of red grouse around here.
0: We should have said what is a grouse.
1: Okay, so what
0: is a red grouse? Well, it's a bit typical of the moorland. It's about the size of a small chicken. Yeah, I'd say it's kind of reddish, brownish in plumage. Quite compact. Definitely compact. And if you've been walking on the moors, the chances are that you've disturbed one and it's flown up in front of you in a flurry. And when it's
1: disturbed, it goes. Just do that again in case it clips. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but well I, think you, you've
0: got, I think you've got a clip of an actual grass. I mean, it's quite hard to record grass, but we, you did manage to yeah. record them once. That's an alarm call, effectively, and that's usually when you hear them. You can also see them flying about. They're quite dumpy, dumpy, and flappy in flight. Yeah. Um, they don't. They don't migrate. They
1: live here all year round. Um, and like they'll breed in the heather. Mm. In they'll nest on the ground. Mm eat the heather shoots, the little chicks will scurry about in the heather and then yeah. by the time August comes which is when the shooting season starts um, I guess the brood from that year, they'll be able to fly yeah, and get shot along with some of the adults mm. um, Yeah. so I suppose we should lay our cards on the table to start with, seeing as we're dealing with a bit of a controversial issue that sparks quite heated debate oh. we both. I won't speak for you, Cathy. Well, you can, actually, on this particular occasion. Okay. <laughs> Go so, right ahead. So we would like to see an end to the management of the moors in this way. Well,
0: specifically, we think, I think, we think... <laughs> yes, you can speak for me as well. <laughs> Shooting wild animals, including grouse and other birds. For fun. For fun, for sport. pleasure or entertainment
1: should definitely be banned it kind of right it kind of crosses a line definitely yeah and then the more you look into it the more outrageous it is because of the practices that have to go on Mm. to sustain a grouse population that is viable for for shooting
0: i think it's also important to say we're not alone in this i think A lot of people in this local area are opposed to grouse shooting. People campaign against it. And the RSPB, in fact, just this year, did a big survey as part of a policy review about game bird shooting. They had over 5,000 respondents, and at least 14% of the RSPB membership supported a ban on shooting. Outright ban. Yeah. So we aren't alone. Also in that survey, there were other people, another minority, the opposite end of the spectrum, who who valued shooting as an activity. But
1: people like us thought shooting had little value and considered it unnecessary and harmful. I suppose one of the things that um, upsets me is this it's a vast quantity of land mm. and um, it's in the control of one group of people who want to do one specific thing with it, which I disagree with, mm. but which also doesn't seem to serve much public good um for such a large area of land to be set aside for this one activity yeah
0: so i've got some figures on that joey there's about in england there are about 175 grouse moors and they cover around about 2200 square kilometers and if you look at it as a whole in the uk because that includes lots of Scotland. These moors take up about 9% of the land area.
1: Nine.
0: 9% of the land area in the UK.
1: Yeah.
0: But obviously in England, it's mainly in the north of England. Yeah. So if you actually look at the counties which have grouse moors, in, the northern counties... In yeah, England. Yeah, which is Cumbria, up the northeast, Lancashire, Yorkshire and Derbyshire, yeah. it covers 7% of the land area in these northern counties.
1: Yeah. So how do we end up with this scenario mm. on our uplands what's what's the history yeah. behind all of this
0: well the uplands in britain generally were always owned either by the king or by lords and aristocracy who who the king had given the, these lands to and they were dis- they were not farmed so they were described as waste or forest and used for hunting mm. by the aristocracy and also for timber and some grazing the the meaning of forest wasn't obviously that it was uh dense dense. canopy no it was more that it was a designation of the land which was which had rules and laws different from the rest of the country so it was a land where people could roam and hunt on horseback for example
1: so it used to look a lot different to this
0: yeah a mixture of you know scrub peat bog woods Uh, Plenty of trees, including oak, pine, birch, willows.
1: And some heather.
0: Yeah, yeah, and bilberry. Over the decade, over the century... Yeah, lots of bogs. So it was a kind of rough, scrubby, varied landscape. And then farmland sort of gradually encroached, sort of moving up the valleys, farms occupied the edges of the the land
1: and bits of land were probably improved with fertilizers yeah Yeah.
0: and there were there was illegal hunting which was described as poaching by people who didn't have permission but um from the mid 19th century onwards that's when there was this discovery that if you burn the heather Increased the productivity in terms of increasing the grouse
1: population specifically. Mid 19th century, yeah, 1800s,
0: 18 something or other, yeah. So that's when the landowners, the people that owned the land at that time, developed this practice of driven grouse shooting, and the pattern of burning the all regularly excluded everyone else from the moors, and began to set up the system of, you know, having having these regular grouse shoot, driven grouse shooting. So that means when they drive the grouse across the moor towards the people who are
1: standing there. So the heather is the grouse's favourite food source in Britain, yes. Yeah. And so by burning it, yeah, you promote new growth yes the Heather tries to regenerate yeah you get these
0: new juicy shoots, shoots. that's what the grouse like to and eat and the grouse
1: like that yeah you increase the
0: food supply of the grouse yeah. you increase the grouse population which means there's more to shoot and this became a bit of a craze right. across northern Britain in the 19th century
1: yeah
0: coupled with increased access because people could come from the cities by train and get picked up and taken to the moors for these shooting parties mm. Um, and it was all organised and run by the gamekeepers employed by the estates. And that's really set the mm. pattern for what we see mm. here today. It was linked to the exclusion of the public, so to protect and avoid disturbing the grouse, the public were excluded. So Some people have heard of the um, Great Mass Trespass of Kinderscout, and that was all about the public trying to reclaim the right to walk on the moors from which they'd been excluded for grass
1: shooting. We're just um, near a footpath today, though. There, I mean, there is general access to yeah. the grouse well, shooting estate, isn't yeah, there?
0: Yeah, that's the other paradoxical thing. Is that, Again, look, this whole area of land we're looking at, not only is it grouse farm for hunting, you know, it's a shooting estate, it's also an open access area. You know, I got that lovely new Ordinance Survey map recently, and the whole area is marked as open access land. You know, so the people now are free to roam all over it.
1: So that's the history of. Where we got to where we are now, and it's particular to Britain, mm. growing the heather for driven grass shooting. Right. Other countries, like for example Scandinavia, yeah, there's hunting going on there, but yeah, it's in a much more naturalistic terrain.
0: Well, that's, and also it's classic hunting where the the solitary hunter stalks about, trying to track down the prey, mm. and you know shoots them one at a time as they find them in yeah. the wilderness. Yeah. Well, here, the practice of driven grouse shooting means that the
1: people stand in the yeah, ground. we're standing box. next to this wooden, big wooden box. Um, it's about two metres by two metres by yeah. two metres, and it's about um, a metre and a half high, maybe? Yeah. Uh, with an opening at one side. And there's a row of these up this little gully yeah. that we're in. So this is where the people with the guns will come and stand, and then in front of us there'll be beaters with well,
0: dogs in, what we can see is a sort of nearby horizon and the beaters will be way over there sort of rounding up the grouse yeah towards this row of grouse buds and the shooters will be standing here with their guns yeah shooting them as they fly yeah. overhead
1: yeah yeah so we've discussed how we've got to this position where we've got these large swathes of upland area designated mm. for nothing but grouse shooting and the land is managed in a really specific
0: way which prevents other vegetation taking hold and minimizes biodiversity
1: so it's paramount to grow as much good quality heather as you can to sustain as large a red grouse population as you can paradoxically this landscape has been given a number of different um, conservation designations
0: Mm. it's given high conservation status by the government
1: so why why is it given high conservation status when it's got so little biodiversity? Yeah,
0: it's been given these conservation status because of the the particular habitat, the blanket bogs that are here as well as the heather moor. Yeah, and the specific birds that also live in this habitat, including curlews, merlins, golden plover, and twite,
1: and lapwing, and lapwing. Some of them are in de- quite endangered now, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. So. The fact that they can live here yeah. affords this habitat special status because yeah. it's got good populations of those endangered yes. species in yeah. it. So this is where you get into this thorny issue of the grouse management mm. businesses digging their heels in in order for there to be enough grouse. They need to manage the land in mm. a certain way. Mm. And they will argue that the the way they manage it is actually favorable for some yeah. of these endangered species That's like right. the curlew and the lapwing. Yeah.
0: So the the arguments are that if they manage the land in this way it provides a habitat suitable for curlews etc and therefore it's advantageous to them. But there are many arguments against that. Not least being like curlews have been here for millions of years and have been living, you know, in Britain long 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 before there was ever any
1: grouse shooting moors. So it's more that we've got rid of so many of the other yeah. habitats that the curlews enjoy living in, yeah. that they aren't there anymore. But that doesn't mean that we should rely mm. on this quite ecologically yeah.
0: damaging yeah.
1: way of managing land yeah. for our curlew population. That's right. And also curlews were living
0: on the wild, in the wild uplands before the middle of the, 18th, uh, middle of the 19th century. And I think the phrase of um, Benedict MacDonald that the species that are here now are the ones that are capable of surviving the wreckage. Yeah. So curlew can survive the wreckage. The curlew is living in this habitat. But that's not to say that there wouldn't be more curlews here if the moors were managed differently and more curlews elsewhere, you know.
1: In fact, um, you've got some interesting data, haven't you? Because... You've been doing some surveys mm. as part of your voluntary work for the British Trust for Ornithology. You've been going to upland areas to monitor bird numbers in them. Yeah, during the breeding season. And also farmland, Yeah. kind of upland farmlands.
0: Yeah, so what, what I found was that the, the squares which we've got just heather actually have hardly any curlews in compared to the other squares i mean one of the squares which i've been surveying for seven years which is entirely heather generally you see between naught and two curlews naught and two golden plovers and two to ten red grouse that's in one square kilometer and another one i survey which is uh, more intensively managed for grouse shooting there's naught to five curlews naught to two golden plovers and a lot more grouse. I've got five to thirteen grouse, and those are like the, the maximum numbers I'd see each year doing the survey. But in contrast, um, one of the squares I've been surveying for ten years um, is a sort of upland, unimproved pasture, rough grazing with a few cows, and then nearby there's some semi-improved, rushy, damp pastures. There on those squares, I see um, fifteen to forty curlews and five to fifteen. Golden plover and a few grouse. Okay. So, what I'm saying is, in this area, in the uplands, the curlews aren't concentrated in the heather moors um, at all. They, they like this habitat, which is a mixture of rough grazing with access to damp farmland for yeah. food supply.
1: And um, on the estate that we're on at the moment, hmm. where there is some farmland yeah. on that estate yeah. rough grazing with rushes and yeah. sheep yeah. Um, yeah, I've actually recorded there yeah. and I'll share a recording in this podcast and there were a lot of lapwing yeah. and I think there were curlew as well yeah. so the totality of the estate if it's got that kind of rough grazing in it could be a good place for these birds yeah
0: but i think my point is that there's no monopoly on heather there's no great there's no big deal about heather yeah moorland exclusively is a breeding ground for the, for these birds they might like it some might like it but it's not essential and necessary yeah to To keep the heather in this particular yeah. state in order to provide a home for curlews, yeah, I just think it's significant as soon as you look at the websites of some of the organizations which are pro grouse shooting, they broadcast this fact about the curlews that that they are essential to providing habitat, good habitats for curlews i mean you'd think they were a, cons- a cur- essential part
1: of curlew conservation mm. They may be important in terms of curlew conservation, but we come back to this point that, well, that's because uh, we've removed all the other habitats for curlew. And should we rely on um, a system that is managed in this way Mm. for our curlews? Mm. No, we shouldn't, because the system is brutal to most forms of wildlife. If you're anything that predates grouse, then... Yeah, you've so, had it. So what we what we haven't
0: talked about yet, Joey, is all the detail of what is involved in uh, this grouse moor management that is controversial. We've you know we've talked about the land use and the heather, but we haven't talked about the other main controversial issue, which, which is all
1: about predator control. Yeah. And, yeah. So as well as providing a great food source for red grouse, what you've also got to do is if you're trying to make as many red grouse as possible um, available is, for hunting. For is, is get rid of everything else that might predate a red grouse. Because I think you said they nest on the ground. Yeah.
0: So they are susceptible to what's known as generalist predators. Um, that includes. Mammals that hunt, carnivorous mammals that hunt on the ground like stoats, weasels and foxes and badgers and birds like crows, magpies, buzzards.
1: And then also because... um, And then I guess there's also hares. Hares won't eat red grouse, but they like heather, don't they? So they're competing for the same food source as the red grouse. So they're also in danger of losing their so lives
0: that's specific to the Peak District in Scotland where you've got mountain hares yeah. competing for the same food source so they, so they often get hunted and killed in those areas as well so the gamekeepers in order to promote grouse numbers basically wage constant and total warfare against those generalist predators Yeah, and hares
1: many of our small carnivorous mammals will mm. be largely absent because of yeah. the laying of traps
0: yep so they do this with traps and snares so there's two types of traps and you, you can you can actually find them i found them lots of times walking about on the moors small traps that they fix on like a log
1: yeah. going
0: across a stream or a galley
1: so the route that a mammal might use yeah. to cross a river they'll put a trap on, yeah. the, on the middle of it which
0: will snap shut and kill them yeah
1: but they sometimes get other birds don't they what were you reading about that? something about dippers yeah and ring oozles being caught in these traps
0: and then snares that's more to catch foxes and then they'll have what's known as a stink pit with a load of dead carcasses in to attract a fox and get them trapped in snares and then they have these big traps which are like a sort of large.
1: Oh, we've seen one of them. Yeah. Like a big wooden cage. Yes. With a crow inside it. Yes, in the middle of the countryside. Like, what is that? You put a live
0: crow inside to attract other crows. Because they're
1: sociable animals. Yeah. So the other crows turn up and go, hello.
0: Yeah. And they often have dead carcasses in them as well. Those are all legal. They're all entirely legal. That's the legal. thing, isn't
1: it? That kind of practices carnage yeah. of our. Our wildlife, mm. like I'd like to see this wildlife, and I'd like to have it around us. Yeah. and I can't see or hear any of it mm. because so it's... it's totally legal yeah. to eradicate it yeah. all and create this completely, in my mind, artificial environment. That's the pro- I think that's the problem. So the
0: the organization, the grouse shooting organizations, argue that by employing predator control it reduces the predation not only on the grouse but it reduces predation on other ground nesting birds like curlew, lapwings etc. Sure
1: it will do won't and it? And so,
0: so it boosts their numbers but like you say it's doing it through entirely artificial practices and totally upsetting the balance of nature. Yeah,
1: and Is that really something that the bodies like the RSPB and, and Natural England and the bodies that are here to protect and enhance and improve, improve yeah. our natural ecosystems should be condoning.
0: Oh, that's the other thing, they do
1: collect subsidies. Not only do, you know... I, I think, think we've, we've officially entered into rant mode <laughs> now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> OK, sorry. I mean, I think, I think whilst we're ranting, I, I think well, let's, one let's... little rant that I have um, mm. is that on a lot of these sites that are our nature organisation sites... Like Natural England Mm. and, to a certain extent, RSPB, although I know on Raptors they're taking a harder stance. Mm. They're not telling it like it is. Mm. They're softening or sanitising the real nature of things. It's like they're almost scared to tell the public what's really going on or they don't want to upset the bodies that they're trying to work with, the Moorland Association, the Game Conservancy bodies... The bodies on the on the other side of the fence. They have to work with those bodies, so they can't publicly be seen to be being too antagonistic right. or harsh on them. Mm. And not only do some of those
0: organisations not explicitly spell out what's happening with predator control, they kind of sometimes I think they wrap themselves up in euphemisms. I mean, like on the Natural England website, it says grouse moor management also involves intensive predator control and in some locations this may result in increased numbers of certain species of ground nesting birds. Natural England seems to accept or regard in a neutral way
1: the killing of... Intensive predator control. Yeah, so
0: the killing of some wild species,
1: which has effects on others. Yeah, if you use a word like control, mm. it's much less um, visceral yeah. and emotive than using a word like killing killing wildlife
0: yeah. and distorting the, 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 the balance of things. I think many conservationists also share the view that predator control may not be attractive or desirable but may be useful in terms of enhancing curly numbers. For example, Mary Colwell, who's a quite an influential naturalist, and she wrote a really good book, Curly Moon, yeah, She got off the fence on the side of predator control based on experiencing, you know, large curlew numbers on a particular grouse-shooting estate. There are other naturalists, such as, we've mentioned him already, Benedict MacDonald, who comes out entirely on the opposite side of the fence, very against...
1: From Mary Coldwell. Yeah, from yeah.
0: very against the practices of involving grouse-moor-shooting. He grouse uses the
1: term fake conservation.
0: Yes, and... Um, he mounts very good arguments against grass more practices
1: yeah i think it's maybe um one of these areas where we'll look back in five or ten years or whenever and think my goodness why on earth did we think that that was all right Uh, it's like well there'll be this shift like we've had with me too or black lives matter where we'll just look Look back and think, well, that's totally unacceptable now. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's interesting, I think there's been a shift into. We haven't discussed the burning of the heather issue very much. Uh, there's been a recent shift against the heather burning on the moors, and some of the other major landowners, like the water companies, the utility companies, have decided that they're not going to do it. And I think um, in the autumn, the Government one of the environment ministers was making statements to indicate they're considering a ban on heather burning, although that hasn't yet become legislation mm. so I think there's a move in that
1: direction, and I mean one of the and I suppose the rewilding movement's gathering yeah. place,
0: isn't it yeah, but one of the other consequences of burning heather apart from reducing biodiversity is damaging the sphagnum and the moss of the of, of, and the peat, and it's generally thought to be linked to increasing flood risk Uh, increasing runoff and the flood risk is an important issue in this area isn't it a lot of people have gotten mobilized and activated about the heather burning because of the flood risk
1: we there is a local pressure group called ban the burn Mm.
0: and uh other campaigners like responsibility and um slow the flow you know organizations planting trees the other consequence now of that people have realised is uh, heather burning is bad for the environment in terms of CO2 release. I mean, obviously, if you burn vegetation, you're releasing CO2, but if you're damaging the peat and the moor, you're reducing the ability of the moor to hold CO2 within it.
1: I think there's a bit of controversy there, though. I think there's a bit of a battle going on with the evidence base. Right. And... Um, but the moors are meant to be one of the... views on whether burning of heather encourages CO2 capture overall or leads to more CO2 release. Right. But the moors
0: themselves are one of the biggest uh, carbon sinks in the country, even more than trees. Yeah. So you're saying that the research is out as to whether heather burning affects that or not?
1: I think what's happened is there was a body of research um, which Natural England were using to um, guide their policy... Mm. on management at grouse moors and the Moorland Association and others uh, have funded in discussion with Natural England a review of newer research and are argu- arguing that the findings from the newer research are contradictory to yeah. the, the previous body of research right. and therefore the policies need to be reviewed. Okay. So, so there's this battle going on yeah. with evidence bases. I think it's a common tactic yeah. from um, industry when it's trying to defend its position. One tactic is to say, well, there isn't enough evidence to make the policy that you're making that's going to be detrimental to us. We yeah. want more evidence or we're going to question your evidence. And it's all part yeah. of a process of slowing down mm. um Things happening that they don't want to happen. Yeah. Reform, Reform, kind of barriers mean, so, yeah. in the way. Yeah. That's a cynical viewpoint yeah. from me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, the other controversial area we haven't touched upon yet. Much is raptor persecution, isn't yeah. it? Um, so this is a totally illegal... Whilst the killing of foxes and generally predators is legal, killing birds of prey... Um, is illegal, and all the um, gamekeeper organisations and the pro-hunting and shooting organisations all totally sign up to that being a crime, and that they are totally against it.
1: They talk about their industry having a few bad apples, don't they? Yeah,
0: and they have zero tolerance for it. So the RSPB um, recently published a report for uh, covering 2007 to 2018 when there were over one thousand two hundred confirmed instances of killing birds of prey, of which six hundred over six hundred eighty were in England.
1: And were they associated with grouse moors?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, buzzards, red kites, peregrines, and sparrowhawks were the, the main species, and um, the highest concentration of these incidents was in upland hab- habitat used for driven grouse shooting. Mm. And the worst county is North Yorkshire. Another one of the other indicators about the the issue of um, rapt persecution is the absence of hen harriers in these areas, because hen harriers are a bird of prey which you would think would be common on the up on the English upland moors. And most researchers estimate there should be about three hundred breeding pairs, whereas in actual fact there are only less than less than a handful breed here every year.
1: And that is thought to be due to illegal killing. And they're a really magnificent bird, mm. if you see them, aren't they? We've seen them in France. Yeah, You might have seen them in yeah. Scotland. Yeah. They're lovely birds, yeah. soaring quite low yeah. over the and top of the heather.
0: Yeah, and it's true that I mean the, these birds of prey in the upland moors, they will eat small mammals and birds that are nesting on the moors. You know, it's obvious that grouse, especially in high numbers, they would be an easy target for these birds of prey. So it's understandable why gamekeepers would like them to be absent. There's an experiment they
1: did um, in Langham Moor border of Dumfries and the borders and I'm quoting here from Bernard MacDonald's book which is called Rebirding Rewilding Britain and its Birds In southern Scotland at this, this moor um, one study explored the dynamics of Grouse, predators, and their human hunters to a forensic degree. Here, a unique combination of gamekeeping and bird conservation interests engaged for years in an experiment. The question at the heart of the study was simple could birds of prey share a landscape with the intensive rearing of grouse? Throughout the experiment, Langham was managed as a grouse moor. It was burned and its common predators controlled, but its hen harriers were fed diversionary food in the nesting season. Between 1988 and 1999, this was shown to reduce the number of red grouse chicks caught by hen harriers, the reason for their intense persecution, by 86%. It was also found, however, that 78% of satellite-tagged red grouse found dead were killed by birds of prey. So this is, um, Benedict then says, this is what birds of prey do. (laughs) It is also why birds of prey will never be economically possible on intensive grouse moors. So really what we're saying is, if we keep this management practice going on, We we have to live without birds of prey.
0: Yeah. They are incompatible together. Because essentially what you're doing is providing them with extra food, isn't it? You know, if you you boost the numbers of the food of birds of prey... Yeah. Birds of prey are going to love it. Yeah. And turn up. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a habitat where there's no artificial distortion of the species, you find a balance between the prey and the predators. And that might be cyclical... But, you know, overall, in the long run, that's what they do.
1: Prey and predators balance each other out. And the one of the predators might be a human, but there might be one wandering through the landscape, having to camp out and learn some field craft if they want to actually successfully kill a red grouse. Mm. So one of the main bodies representing the... Grouse shooting organisations is the Moorland Association, and they've got a website which talks all about all the positive things. Yeah, it sort of promotes
0: it's itself as a conservation organisation. You know, when you click on their website, it it highlights
1: conservation at work. So you'd think it was maybe like Natural England yeah. or a body like that. Yeah,
0: and it says they're passionate in their care for. 860,000 acres of heather moorland in England and Wales for wild red grouse.
1: Well, I suppose that is true. Mm. They are passionate in their care, (laughs) heather moorland, for red grouse. But they
0: also say, careful land management through the skill and dedication of gamekeepers has seen significant gains for some other of the country's most endangered ground-nesting birds. That's true. Yeah. But... (laughs) They also say that their management of the land has led to the successful breeding of hen harriers.
1: I suppose they might have a few examples where that's happened, <laughs> but it's not exactly 300 breeding pairs, is it?
0: They say, without this work, this precious land would revert to scrub and forest and the heather moors lost forever. But one of their main arguments is that this industry provides employment. Um, and in England, looking at the data, their data, 175 grouse moors does employ directly and indirectly, one thousand five hundred and twenty people. But, um, that is far fewer. If you actually count up jobs per square kilometre, which is something that um Benedict does, um, it's far fewer than could be employed in ecotourism or than is employed, than are employed in the national parks, for example. Yeah. Uh, And the same goes for income generation. They claim that their spin-offs from grouse shooting in the north of England are worth in excess of £15 million per year. But again, that's far less than tourism. The National Parks of England, which cover 12,500 square kilometres, generate £4 billion in expenditure by tourists and visitors. Mm. So the jobs argument and the income generation argument don't hold up if you compare it to whatever else you could be doing with this land in terms of ecotourism tourism other leisure activities or if you compare it to other upland areas like the national parks which are yeah. which are doing that sort of activity yeah. and the same goes for visitor numbers i mean again the moorland associations like they generate 4000 visits to the uk per year for shooting but there are hundreds of thousands of people who come for wildlife-based tourism. Yeah,
1: I don't feel like it's welcoming no. me in. There aren't loads of footpaths across it. It's kind of uniform. I think that's the thing. I think if it was,
0: if it was very different, if it was more varied and more of a mosaic of, you know, woods and bogs, more naturally rich with a, with a web of footpaths and bike routes through it, you know, it would be far more interesting to yeah. explore. Yeah.
1: It's a bit like a
0: moonscape. Mm. And if you were having, if you, you know, if the chances of seeing interesting wildlife were enhanced again, more people would go to look at the wildlife.
1: And we've been standing here for a while now, and okay, what have we heard? Some meadow
0: pipits. Heard some grasshoppers. Seen one bumblebee. Yeah.
1: That's it. And you've been bitten by oh, a few flying, flying ants. ants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose, in fairness. It's August, so yeah. the birds aren't singing their hearts out like right. in the spring, are they?
0: No, but when I'm when I'm doing my surveys, which is off the footpaths quite often on the heather moor, I've said about not seeing very many curlews, but equally I see a few meadow pipits, and that's it. You know, I'm not seeing an abundance of all different birds and, and mammals. Oh, see the occasional roe deer bounding through.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: but um. What we haven't yet talked about, really, is the fact that other organisations are campaigning to improve the quality of the moors, aren't they? I mean, there there is this recognition that the moors are in a very poor state, you know, ecologically, compared to what they could be. And there's this whole uh, group of organisations coming under the umbrella of moors for the future, which is a partnership of... um, Peat District National Park, Penang Prospects, the Environment Agency, the National Trust, the RSPB and water companies. Anyway, this partnership is um, undertaking conservation work and investing in things to try and um, improve the moors. What um, kind of things are they doing? Well, they're, they're trying to directly enhance habitats like the sphagnum moss, the peat bogs, and tr- trying to improve water quality by revegetating damaged areas. They also do things like blocking gullies and actually planting vegetation to promote the increase of sphagnum moss and other plants to slow the runoff. Um, As well as trying to improve the habitat, they do recognise that the moors are really vital for humans and they promote the moors as space to breathe and to play and and they talk about enhancing health and wellbeing. But in fact, again... They're one of these organisations that minimises any mention of uh, grass shooting industry, and they don't really talk about the ill effects of it.
1: I suppose it's just easier to be non-confrontational, uh. isn't it, in life? Mm. But at the heart of the
0: problem is this: ostensibly, the government or the nation cares about the more and wants to promote, look after them, and promote them, and has all these conservation-type designations but at the same time overlapping on the same location is this you know destructive killing machine in operation yeah killing the plant life killing the animals deciding how the land should be used and it's really undemocratic as well i think that tiny numbers of you know, essentially rich um private sector organizations are determining the use of large areas of our country
1: yeah so um, maybe with brexit mm. and us coming out with a common agricultural policy mm. and all these statements about public money for public goods yeah that will be a trigger yeah, to a reevaluate yeah this kind of management practice that's
0: true and also coronavirus lockdown you know people have been going out into the local area more maybe people are appreciating their local surroundings more and maybe we'll want things to be very different people power will yeah will play I mean, a role it's not hard to imagine what this could be like if if there was a change in management practice let's say i
1: suppose if you look at places like in the northern hemisphere where they haven't gone down this route grass, like, like, like of heather farming yeah, like grass southern, farming. southern scandinavia yeah that's, then you've yeah. got a picture of what what we might be able to achieve yeah. so sort of here. woody
0: woody and scrubby with bogs and Lakes
1: and yeah, marshes. like a, this word mosaic Yeah, keeps popping up when you yeah. start reading about rewilding and the, the idea of creating a landscape that's full of lots of different, yeah. different little niches that supports different right. species.
0: So there'd be a, a, a greater variety of bird life, not just the ones that um, are, to quote Benedict, clinging on to the wreckage, yeah. surviving in the wreckage. Yeah. There'd be, as well as the upland nesting waders, a great variety of birds. There'd be more mammals. Well,
1: he's got a quote in his book actually i think he's kind of looked into the future yeah um if our moors grew wilder and were studded with trees black grouse cuckoos and many other birds would search back merlins would elevate their nests off the ground short-eared owls would return to hunt for field voles as they do on the moors of orkney ring oozles a tree-lined species whose young are evolved to seek out juniper berries would mm. increase, mm. and not one wild bird would end its life in agony dying in a trap. Mm. So, let's hope that that future exists.
0: Let's hope we've reached some kind of turning point, and that the days of driven grouse shooting wars are numbered. <laughs> <laughs> but that that people, everybody, comes to realise that an alternative vision of, is possible. You know better for wildlife and also better for humans.
1: Yeah, so um, if you're interested in finding out a bit more about the moors, then like you mentioned the organisation Moors for the Future is a good place to start, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
0: And it's a, it's, they've got a really good website and lots of um, they point you in many directions to get involved if you're interested in
1: getting involved practically.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of information about these controversial issues on the
1: um, RSPB website. Also if you'd like to contribute financially to the fight against raptor persecution and other wildlife crimes then wild justice who are um, taking legal cases on behalf of threatened species Mm. is worth taking a look at. So yeah normally we'd leave you with um, a nice field recording from the area that we've made the podcast in but as you can hear it's really quite quiet here today so uh, we're leaving you instead with um, a soundscape from very close by. Kathy. do you yeah. want to explain?
0: So this is, this is recorded in May, late May, a couple of years ago, in the upland area where um, I do one of my surveys. So it involves lots of curlews. But it's important to note this is not a grouse moor and it's not a heather moor
1: but it, it's got the features that Curly like, so the bogginess.
0: Yes, it's the area we mentioned earlier. It's, it's um, a sort of rough, grassy moor, but with quite close proximity
1: to wet, boggy fields. OK. See you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye.